Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is a best-selling author, journalist and documentary maker. His books have been translated into more than 16 languages and his writings have appeared in publications like The Washington Post, The Sunday Times and The Guardian. He's also won several awards, including the Jewish Quarterly Wingate Prize. His new book, The Maverick, George Weidenfeld and the Golden Age of Publishing, tells the story of the legendary publisher. After moving to London just before World War II as a penniless Austrian-Jewish refugee, Weidenfeld went on to become a world-famous literary figure, publishing works such as Lolita and Double Helix and championing writers like Joan Didion, Henry Miller and J.D. Salinger. Thomas Harding, welcome to Meet the Writers. Oh, it's so great to be here. Thanks for welcoming. We need to make it quite clear that you are not the author of Jude the Obscure. <laughs> I aspire to be, but no, sadly not. <laughs> but it, nevertheless, a name that's very similar to a, to a very <laughs> famous writer. And I wonder if writing was always something that was on the cards, perhaps because of the name or just your natural talent outing early. I mean, weirdly, I remember one of those early moments in my life. I was sitting on a step in my parents' house with my cousin James. I was about seven years old. He would have been six. And I told him that I really wanted to be a writer and I didn't think I could be. And he said, of course you're going to be a writer. So I always, during my school years, I I wrote for the school magazine and all those kind of things. But then I took a circuitous route. I got into television and documentaries, but writing was always my passion. And I have to tell you that it's it just gives me great joy. That's wonderful. It really it's, does. It's quite a painful process, isn't it, for many, many people? So it sounds hubristic to say it's not painful for me, except for the aspects of it which I really don't like are the commercial side of it. The part at the very beginning, the pitching, the coming up with the idea. I don't know if you've had to do this, but I can't stand it when you've got to kind of summarise your project and present it. And, because it's not really writing it. It's a type of communication which... I, is, I don't really like. Mm. And also the problem for me is it assumes that I know how the book's going to be before it happens. Whereas I need to work my th- way through it. I love the research. I love the other. Ve- I love all the other stages. The research. I love the writing, the editing. I love the editing. And then I like all this, the presenting, the conversations and all those kind of things. Even the packaging. I'm really into kind of how the book looks and how you put it all together. So, But the one part I don't like, which is properly painful, and I've become slightly neurotic actually, I... I try to avoid people because I become quite difficult. <laughs> but presumably you have an agent who does. I do. All who of that amaz- they're totally yeah. amazing. Yeah. Totally uh, grateful for them. And it's odd then that that's the part you don't like dealing with the publisher and so on, because your latest huh. work is all about really a person that some have called is one of the greatest publishers that this country has ever seen. Yeah, I mean, George Weidenfeld. When I was. The book's genesis is I was actually approached. It's the only time that this has happened to me before. Uh, I've always come up with my own books, but I received a phone call from the chairman of Bidenfeld Nicholson at the time who said, would really love you to write this book. And I said, I don't think you've got the right person. I've never even met the guy. And there must be lots of other eminent people who know him, knew him. He died before. And he said, no, no, actually, that's actually why we want you to write it, because you never met him. You also share the same background and we like what you do. So I was incredibly flattered but also intimidated. Listen, I I am not the most well-read person, so a lot of these books I hadn't actually read, like Lolita. I'm embarrassed to say I'd never read Lolita, The Double Helix, The Group, a lot of these classic books, Hedgehog and the Fox by Isaiah Berlin. And so 
actually, I went back to my cousin, James, again, I went back to him and I said, what do you think of this idea? And he says, actually, this is well, this could be incredible. Just an opportunity for you to, the same, the same cousin I'd sat on the steps all those years before. And he said, well, just take your time and enjoy it. Enjoy the opportunity to read these books. And it has been such a wonderful journey. I can't tell you, reading these extraordinary works of literature, getting to know the books, but also the process behind the publication of the books. Mm. It's been a total joy. And it was such an eye-opener for me, reading about how they all worked and how they did work, because, of course, publishing has changed quite significantly since he set it up. But just about this shared background, tell me about yours and how that chimes with Weidenfeld. Yeah, so so my family, German-Jewish, on my father's side, they were forced to leave Germany because of the Nazis in the 1930s. We lost members of our family in the Holocaust, which I only learnt more recently, we'd always been told we were the lucky ones and that none of our family members had died. And then on my mother's side, we had to leave what was then Prussia in the 19th century because of pogroms. So an earlier wave of anti-Semitism. And they'd come via Holland and Belgium to Britain. And then they had set up this extraordinary catering business, J. Lyons, the Lyons Corner Houses, the Tea Rooms and all that, which I've written about in another book called Legacy. So all these really interesting ancestors behind me and amazing stories. Mm. And of course, your first book was actually about the Holocaust. Yeah, my first book was about <laughs> my great uncle Hunt. He he was the one of the family who used to tell us children dirty jokes. He so was, the favourite uncle. <laughs> he, was the, he was the larger life character. And he died in 2006. And during his memorial service, my dad read out a eulogy And in this, there was much that was familiar about my family having to leave Germany. My great uncle, he served in the British Army afterwards. He went to Belsen after it was liberated as part of the British Army. And then there were some things that I'd never heard before, one of which was he had been a Nazi hunter after the war and he had tracked down and captured the commandant of Auschwitz. And I'm like, no, that can't be true. I mean, he was a storyteller. He would have told us these stories. And so I challenged my dad and he said, no, no, no. We would none of us believe any of that stuff. I said, well, why do you put it in the eulogy? He said, well, you know, there's this talk. So then I spent the next eight years trying to find out if that story was true. And it was true. And that led on to this amazing research opportunity where I not only found out about my great uncle Hunt, but also the guy who we captured, this guy called Rudolf Huss, the commandant. And I wrote this book about their two stories, and it was fascinating. Now, this new book about the Maverick, about Weinfeld, is in fact your 10th book. Yes. The one that I've read previously is The House by the Lake, no. which I think is probably your, your most well-known work. Tell us a little bit about that, because it also gives us an insight into your, into your family. I thought my, work, my most well-known work was Judy of the Obscure. Really, so, no. <laughs> was it Mayor of Castlebridge? Mayor of Castlebridge. <laughs> this. No. Yeah, The House by the Lake, again, it's about my family in Berlin and about this house that they had this weekend house, Wochenend house, outside to the west of Berlin. There's some lakes around Potsdam. This little house that they used to run away to at the weekends. And, of course, when they left Germany, they lost the house. It was taken by the Nazis. But then another family lived there, a Nazi family, who fell in love with this house by the lake. And then another family moved in after the Russians moved into East Germany because it was part of East Germany. And so these sequence of families fell in love with this little house and it was taken away from them. And I thought this might be an interesting way to talk about the history of Germany, history of Europe. And so it became 100 years told through these five families. It's been, you know, just a fascinating project. And talking about books, it's also had this afterlife because now 
since the book was written, we've saved the house and we've turned it into this centre of education and reconciliation. And a couple of months ago, we were incredibly honoured the brother of the king came to visit. My grandmother would have thought this hilarious and she would have also loved it, but she also thought would have seen the funny side, which is after she had to leave Germany, she spent her life being a tour guide. She used to take people around all the royal houses in Britain. So the idea that a member of a royal family came to see her house in Germany, she would have loved, <laughs> loved that. Another book that you've written that sadly I haven't read and it's on my pile now is White Debt and that's all about Britain's legacy of slavery. Yes, so when I was doing research about my mother's family, the family that had the lions, corner houses, tea rooms, I discovered that they had an earlier business which I had no knowledge of, which was in the 19th century, they had this very large tobacco business called Salmon and Gluckstein. These were the names of the family, Salmon and Gluckstein. And it was the largest tobacco retailer in the country. It was like the Starbucks of tobacco. They had a shop on every corner. Karl Marx used to smoke their cigars. And uh, their marketing slogan was, smoke more, pay less. <laughs> Something which probably wouldn't work today. Right. But then I kind of was thinking about it. And before 1865, tobacco sold in Britain almost certainly came from the United States. And at that time, tobacco came from plantations worked by enslaved people, which meant that my family almost certainly made their fortune, their first fortune based on slavery. Well, the shoe was very much on the other foot. You know, I'd been writing about my family, the victims of the Holocaust of Nazi Germany. Now, my other part of my family, very much on the perpetrators. And so I felt I should look into that. And I, I was very embarrassed at how little I knew about slavery and certainly Britain's role in slavery. I knew a little bit about the American slavery. And I don't know about you, but when I was at school, I was told we abolished slavery. We were the great liberators, Will, William Wilberforce. And so I thought I should investigate that. And I had a really interesting couple of years looking at Britain's role in slavery and particularly this uprising in Demerara, this colony, today it's Guyana, where actually this is the 200th anniversary this year. And at the time, it was the largest uprising of enslaved people. And it was a way of talking about Britain's role in slavery mm. at the time. And it became a really interesting exercise and also very challenging. And, I, and it was a, a lot of difficult moments and interesting moments. Were you always a Weidenfeld author? No, no, not at all. I was with Penguin until my last couple of books. I was with Penguin. And so this book is actually being published by Weidenfeld and White Debt was published by Weidenfeld Nicholson. So let's talk about Weidenfeld, sure. though. I mean, larger than life. Right at the beginning, you say that Weidenfeld's story provides an insight into some of today's hot-button cultural mm. conflicts, protecting freedom of speech while avoiding hatred and offence, safeguarding the right to publish but adhering to national security and libel laws. You talk about providing even greater access to information without infringing on people's privacy. And you say it's one of the great contemporary questions. Should the value of information be judged by the quality of the product and its contribution to society or by the size of its audience and become so important today, its engagement. So should information be curated? I mean, this is basically what the book is about, but it's also about what George Weidenfeld's life was about. It was his, his life's quest, really, apart from being this lavish entertainer and being one of those super connectors that answered all those questions by bringing this group of diverse people together. Well, when I was looking at George Weidenfeld's life, I began to realise that 
he had one success after another. You know, it was Lolita and the group and it was Hitchcock and the Fox and Double Helix and Booker Prize winners and and on and on. I started to ask myself, what are the ingredients for bringing about great literature? Is it just the author? Is it just the fact that somebody's coming up with some great writing? Or does the publisher have a role in that? And in which case, what are those characteristics? And I think you can say because he had so many successes that the publisher does play a very important role. And partly it's about, I think, recognising genius. So, for example, George was the first person to publish Henry Kissinger. He had been to eight American publishers. They'd all turned him down in the 1950s. And George met him. He read the book. He said, yeah, I want to publish it. The same again with Double Helix. He fought for the right for Lolita. You know, so he had the ability, I don't know if you call it perspicacity or a vision or instinct or, you know, a nose for it. I don't know what the word is. But he had that ability to be able to recognise greatness and then manifest the publication of the book. Mm. Well, that was really interesting to me and trying to work those parts, those steps out and compare it to other publishers and I think he was, as you said, it's partly maybe because of his ability to network. You know, he'd always put himself out there. He had these famous parties. He was constantly saying, let me publish your book, send me your manuscript. He was always, he was curious. He had this extraordinary curiosity, it struck strikes me. People used to say, well, he never reads any of the books, but that's totally not true. And he was a great and avid reader. And he was also a reader of people, I think. And he was really open-minded to new ideas and he used to fight for the right to publish and for the freedom of speech he was very that was very important to him until it wasn't and that was also interesting to me there were limits mm. you know and so this was something that surprised me here was the guy who fought for Lolita to be published and the group which was banned in Australia that's why I was mentioning the group and other books and yet when it came to for example some of his pet subjects or his key interests, he was very, very precious. So there's a chapter in the book about Max Hastings, who wrote a book about Yoni, who's the brother of Netanyahu, Bibi Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel. And Yoni, Bibi's brother, had been killed during the Entebbe raid. He was the commander of that. He was the commander and he was killed. And George Weidenfeld actually approached Max Hastings right at the beginning of his writing career and said, would you be interested in writing this? And Max Hastings said yes, on the condition that no one would mess with his text. And then he was given unbelievable access to the Israeli security services. Max was beside himself with the excitement. No one else had been given any intros to the, the secret units, the high security units, the equivalent of the SAS, SAS in Israel. Wrote the book, sent it to George, was like very pleased about it. And then George sent it to the Israeli government. And the Israeli government said no. That's not going to work. At the end of the day, George chose the Israeli government over his author. Mm. Well, that's not somebody who believes in free speech. That's not somebody who protects the right of their author. It's not somebody who, who's going to fight unconditionally for the ability for someone to, to be able to express themselves. So it's, there's contradictions mm. which make it interesting to me. And I mean, oddly, he was also very obsessed with the Nazis and published a lot. I mean, he even published some of Hitler's work. He was not only was he obsessed, but he was very early in his obsessions. So... It, his first books, many of his first books in the late 40s and 50s, were not about the Nazis. They were by the <laughs> Nazis. These were, you know, Martin Bormann, Adolf Hitler, Hitler's architect, 
These were uh, speeches by some of the senior Nazis. And he justified it. And I think there's some, some room for this. I think I can understand his argument is that for this not to happen again, you need to understand their thinking. But he always set the books in context. He would find an expert on the person who would write the introduction. So, for example, Rudolf Hust, who we spoke about earlier, the commandant of Auschwitz, he found Lord Liverpool, who wrote the introduction to Rudolf Hust's memoirs. It was a very clever commercial strategy because really, at the time, it would only be someone with his background who probably could have done it. And the books did really well. It's also interesting from an ethical, moral point of mm. view. And he was very criticised at the time by many in the Jewish community and beyond. Because he also commissioned the book on Unity Mitford, all about her relationship with Hitler and her Nazi sympathies. And what that provoked, of course, was the, the British aristocracy coming together as one. And really, that bat squeak of anti-Semitism rang throughout the land, it seems to me. I mean, I was totally shocked by this. I don't know about you, but I mean, maybe I'm naive, but I... Had no idea. I was born in the 60s, so this was before my time. And the pushback, this virulent anti Semitism, where David Price Jones, the author, did extraordinary research to find out about Unity Mitford and her adoption not only of Nazi ideology, but also she fell in love with Adolf Hitler. She spent time out there. And he wrote this meticulously researched book. And when drafts of it were circulated, the British aristocracy, members of the British aristocracy, parts of it, came out massively against not only David but George. And a lot of their writing and a lot of their arguments were based on anti-Semitism. I mean, really disgusting and dismaying. The good news is that there's also a lot, significant part of the British media and establishment who defended David Price Jones. Editors of various newspapers came out, various publishers who were in competition with George, defended him, came out in solidarity with him. So in the round, it was a good look. I mean, for example, Melvin Bragg, who was, had a TV show even then, was been on television forever. (laughs) You know, David Price Jones was on there with Oswald Mosley and Oswald Mosley did not come out of it very well Mm. because Oswald Mosley was one of those leading the charge against the book. But out of that, you get a sense not only of the anti-Semitism in Britain, but also, I think, George's brilliance in curating and navigating and marshalling this book through very choppy waters you know, when you're looking back across the decades now, I think he comes out of it really well. So mm. there, there, look, there are instances like we were talking about with Max Hastings where I think he doesn't come out that well at the end of the day. Mm. And there are lots of other instances where he comes out well. When I was writing it, I really did try and play a straight bat on this. You know, I didn't have any preconceptions. I'd never met the guy. I was genuinely interested. I'm sure I made mistakes. But I really tried to say it, play it, like I saw it. I mean, it was a really brave undertaking because George was pretty obsessed with getting his own story out there. And there had been a number of books beforehand. The very first one, his memoir, was absolutely trashed. Well, I mean, there was actually attempts before that, Mm. which never got published. So he was, like you say, obsessed with his own story. He was always wanting to have a biography written of him. Victoria Glendening attempted the first effort. That didn't work out. For his various birthdays, books were were commissioned, which included good wishes from the great and the good, you know, whether it's Nabokov or some of the other writers or artists that he knew. And he loved, he's cherished these. 
The next attempt was by George himself. He wrote an autobiography with the help of Gina Thomas, who's the German correspondent for FAZ here in London. He wasn't happy with the results. She wasn't happy with the results. It was trashed by the media. And then William Shawcross also tried to do, more recently, an effort. So I was, it was definitely, that was, I knew about some mm. of that, but not all of that. And that was definitely anxiety provoking. I think it was easier because he had died a few years earlier. And, you know, he'd had a good old long life. So I think I found it was probably put me in a slightly easier spot. Yeah. So I was fortunate to be able to research the book and write about the book after Georgia died, which mm. put me in a, an easier spot, I think. Mm. Uh, you do it very cleverly because he published 6,000 books. You yeah. choose just 19 and you tell mm. his story through mm. those important 19 books. Yeah. And some of them, like the uh, biography of Mick Jagger, didn't actually ever see the light of day. Mm. You talk a lot about his wives. He had four in mm. all. You talk about the Lavender List. He was on that very controversial list, which made various people peers. And again, you see that anti-Semitism coming up at that time. And you talk about his friendships and his legacy. And the fact that even when he was a peer of the realm, he didn't really feel that accepted, that he always really did feel quite alone. This is the rosebud part of the story. This is the moment when I really, the penny dropped. I'd written the first chapter of the book and it wasn't a very good first chapter. And This hasn't happened to me before. I wrote the first chapter and then I wrote the rest of the book. And then I kind of came back to it and I was like, this, this doesn't work very well. And I was in Vienna at the time and I'd gone to Vienna where George had grown up. And two things happened. One was I saw a documentary made by Matthias Doffner, who is the head of Axel Springer and owns Polisco and was an unbelievably close friend with George. And in this documentary, he goes around the world and he interviews the good and the great, Merkel and Perez and Cole and all these people who are saying how marvellous George is. It was for some anniversary, some birthday anniversary, maybe the 85th or 90th. And that's all a bit of a yawn fest, to be honest, and a hagiographic. But there's one moment, there's two minutes where George and Matthias go back to the flat in Vienna where George was born, where he grew up. And Matthias says to him, who's much, much taller than George. George was not that tall, but Matthias is much taller. And they're in this courtyard. And Matthias says, tell me about this place. And George said, well, I grew up here. I had my parents were here, my grandmother. And Matthias says, what was it like? Matthias was a journalist, so he's very good at interviewing people. And George's tone changes in this moment. And he said, it was awful. When my parents used to go out for the evening, the nanny would be with me and then she would invite her boyfriend over and lock me in the bedroom and they'd have sex in the bedroom next door. You know, this horrific moment. And I'd already read that he was a lonely person, but this was the moment I understood the kind of the searing heat of that loneliness. William Shawcross had done these extraordinary interviews with George Rice, very grateful for because I saw the transcripts. This book was never published. But in this, he really does talk at length about his loneliness. Mm. And when I interviewed people, and isn't this interesting, this man is was known by many as the greatest network on planet Earth. He had these extraordinary parties. He threw these amazing social galas on the, his flat on the embankment. He was famous for it from the 50s and 60s on, famous for these parties, and they just got bigger and bigger and bigger. I had access to his diaries. At one point, he was having two or three social engagements at his flat every day. He had boxes and boxes, because I had access to his files, of placement. So it had not only the menus, but where everybody was sitting day after day after day. He was 
unbelievably networked. I was given access to his Rolodex, his contact list, and anyone that you'd want to know, presidents, kings, queens, prime ministers, they were all there, rock and roll stars. He knew everyone, and yet, and yet, this man was so lonely that he would be in bed at night and he'd call people and say, it's 11 o'clock at night, please come over and be with me. Later in life, when he spent quite a lot of time by himself, he would be calling his friends in tears, saying how lonely he felt. So interesting, isn't it, mm. this kind of public and private contrast? What do you think his legacy is? Yes, I think he's got a number of legacies. One is his books, of course, and I think these books will last. We've talked about some of these titles. The publishing house itself is one of the few publishing companies which have been still retain the names, eponymous companies, Weidenfeld and Nicholson, and they're doing amazing work still, and they've got this extraordinary reputation and backlist. I think, you know, he does have a non-publishing legacy and there's a various organisations and charities. He's set up or be named up after him. There's various scholarships, there's awards, there's a Germany, there's a journalist award in Oxford, there's fellowships for students. So there are these various legacies. There's a lot of people who I've met who've said that their lives have been unalterably, unalterably changed by by him personally. And these are people in positions of power. But I think of all those things, it's got to be the books. It's got to be the books. That's what's going to last. The people will die. The organisations will move on. But the books, some of these books, and I think he really deserves an extraordinary amount of credit for these books. And you sort of sum it up really beautifully in the book. And again, we go back to Matthias Dopfner. Mm. And you say that actually George should have realised he was never alone. Dopfner was so close to him and yeah. and still, I mean, Dopner is around, he's very active yeah. still and still cherishes him to this day. Yeah, I mean, he was very, uh, Matthias Dopner was extraordinarily open with me. You know, he's a busy man with a lot going on. He made time for me because, not for me, he said, but because of George. And he shared some really moving memories. At the very end of one of our conversations, I said to Matthias, and this is after he had said that his company had acquired Politico for a billion euros or dollars and the first thing he wanted to do was call George and tell him George by then I think had died and he said he was constantly talking to George even though he's no longer around and so he, George plays a very important role in Matthias Dauphin's life he says and I said okay so how do you express your affection towards him do you hug do you and he said we hold hands I said oh you hold hands he said yeah we and this really surprised me he said yeah we sit on a sofa and we hold hands. And sometimes that could be for half an hour. We'll just sit there holding hands. I was really moved by that, that image and that sense of companionship. And I was really pleased for George that he found that with at least this one person. There may have been others, but at least this one person. And that was reciprocated. I was really happy about that. Well, thank you for introducing this great man to me. It was such a pleasure to read about him, to read about the early days of publishing, oh. to hear all the ins and outs of his partnership with Nigel Nicholson, yes. all his financial worries, <laughs> all his wonderful parties, and all, of course, these fantastic books that he produced. This book is called The Maverick, George Weidenfeld and the Golden Age of Publishing. It's obviously published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson and it's by Thomas Harding. Thank you so much. It really has been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Tamsin Howard and Helmi Pillai. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.